So we are going to be in the book of Titus together this morning. We are going to do what I like to call a cheeky little flyby, and we will stop off at a few points uh, along the way, but just before we do that, can we pray? Because we need the Lord, right? And we need His Spirit to help us. Let's just pray. Lord, we love you, and we're so grateful for the gospel that has saved us. We're so grateful that you've not left us scrabbling around in the dark looking for answers uh, to life's uh, problems, to how to live uh, in a way that honors you, that you've given us your words. Uh, But we are weak, we are foolish sometimes, and we need your help. We need uh, your spirit of wisdom to give us understanding, and we ask for that uh, today. This morning, Lord, help us to listen well and help us to uh, lead and uh, learn well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, when I first walked out of maximum security prison and into a church for the first time, I was completely clueless. I didn't know one end of the Bible from another. I was as biblically illiterate as a person as you are ever likely to meet in your life. And one of the earliest mistakes I made in uh, the first few days and weeks and months of going to church was that I assumed that I was the dumbest person in the room and everybody knew everything about the Bible and the Christian life. And as far as I was concerned, If you'd been going to church for a long time, if you dress nice, if you look like you could answer a few questions, then you were an expert on the Bible and all things Christians. And and I did what all new converts to the faith do in their early days. I asked questions. I was annoying, I still am annoying. I would read every single thing I could get my hands on, and I pestered every single person I met about the Bible. And and here's the issue. I believed people. I believed Christians. You see, I was street smart, but church dumb. And it didn't take me very long to find out that actually I wasn't the dumbest person in the room. Because all that glittered was not gold. And people taught me all sorts of weird things. Apparently God was happiest if I wore a shirt and a tie. I used to own one once. I repented and have... (laughs) Never gone back. Amen, the Lord has freed me. Uh, I was told that you Christians shouldn't post a letter on a Sunday. I'm not sure why I needed that information, but it was communicated to me. I was told there was only one true version of the Bible, and the rest were inspired by Satan. I was told that perhaps Jesus had saved me, but I would remain an addict for the rest of my life. The biggest lie of them all. But you know what? I was grateful for my pastor. I had a pastor who's an old fella, and his name of Anthony Finney. He was a godly and still is decent man. And he taught me a very important lesson in life, a very simple lesson. He said this. He said, listen, Mez, know your Bible. He says, by knowing your Bible, by knowing the Word of God, you will know the mind of God. And if anybody teaches you anything that conflicts with the mind of God, then it is their mind that is confused because it's never his. And that's the best bit of advice I think I ever received as a new Christian. And because as my Christian faith wore on, I ran into more and more uh, problems. I ran into misguided Christians, I ran into badly taught Christians, I ran into bitter Christians, and I ran into false teachers. 
And without the guidance and help of a godly man, uh, a, a godly pastor and a church that looked after me, I would have been swallowed up in the early years. And sadly, I have seen many of my friends fall by the wayside in my Christian life, including the man that led me to Christ. Destroyed by false teachers and destroyed by false teaching. Beautiful men and women of the faith ravaged by savage wolves. And this is the sort of stuff that is going on as we jump into this letter. This is what's happening around 60, 65 AD. I don't know the exact date, who does? Uh, And uh, we read this letter written by Paul to this young church planter called Titus. And even though he's facing some very culturally specific problems in this book, there is still great application for our day. And as Paul writes this letter, the, church, <clears throat> the churches in Crete are under sustained attack. Look at one, chapter 1, verse 5. This is, he, says to, he says that this <clears throat> is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint every, elders in every town as I directed you. So we know that the main problem in the churches there was false teaching. There were false prophets traveling around doing great damage to the church, and they needed to be sorted out. And the issue just wasn't in Titus. You cannot rummage around in the New Testament without bumping in to warning after warning about false teaching and false teachers. Matthew 7:15, we're warned about false prophets. Mark 13:22 to 23, again we are warned. Paul warns the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, 29 to 30 that there would be savage wolves coming among God's people. Paul warns the church in 2 Corinthians 11, 2 to 4, about those who preach another Jesus. He warns Timothy to be on his guard in 1 Timothy chapter 4, 1 to 3. Some will come in and pervert the truth. He warns them others will depart from the faith. In 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 9, he's even more explicit. He warns against false teachers who worm their way into people's homes and lives. And there's more. 2 Peter 2, 1 to 3. False prophets. 1 John 2, 18 to 23, he warns about antichrists. 2 John 7 talks about deceivers. This stuff is all over the New Testament. So we better be planning in our churches, in our lives, in our ministries, we better be planning for these sort of problems from the get-go. Because let me guarantee you, I've been in this gig nearly 20 years now, let me guarantee you, if you are in a church, you will have problem people. If you are in a church, you are a problem person. And we will come up against, we will rub up against false teaching and false teachers. That is a guaranteed fact. And our job as shepherds, our job as believers with one another, is to feed the flock, care for the diseased lambs, and shoot the wolves. And we are foolish and naive if we do not think that there are false teachers, wolves, and liars out there ready to destroy our churches and wreak havoc among our congregations. I, I hear people, I mean, people come to my church sometimes claiming all sorts of nonsense. I attract visiting prophets like flies for some reason. Apparently, these people have been led by the Holy Spirit to come and do this and that. Uh, And their lives are absolute train wrecks. Divorced multiple times, bankrupt, left a wreckage behind in their uh, last church. And some of these people come and they look good and they smell nice and they've got good teeth. (laughs) Good teeth is a novelty in Scotland. And they're slick. 
but they're nothing more than empty talkers. And in our churches, there are many of them. In our seminaries, there are many of them. On the blogosphere, there are many of them. And in Crete, there were many of them. And so Paul writes here and says, look, here's what the problem is. So we're going to look, what's the problem? And then we're going to look at what are some of the solutions. So the problem is that there are people in the churches, they're teaching false doctrine, and Titus has got to deal with it, Paul says. You look at the language of chapter 1. Many insubordinate talkers, sorry, many insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of a Jewish heritage, he says in verse 10. That's strong stuff. He goes on to call them liars, gluttons, lazy beasts in verse 12. They are those who turn away from the truth, he says in verse 14. Teaching these Jewish myths. I've got no idea what these Jewish myths were, but uh, suffice to say that their focus was not on the gospel of Jesus. Their emphasis was elsewhere. Uh, he says something similar in 1 Timothy 1 4, where he says, The false teachers paid attention to myths and endless genealogies, which gave rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. So we, we get an indication of stuff that was flying around at the time. These people are legalists in that they promoted the commandments of men over the word of God. We see that in 1 verse 14. These people thought they were pure by keeping Old Testament laws. They were adding to the gospel. But Paul is strong, isn't he? They, are, they have defiled minds and consciences, he says in 1 verse 15. They are Christ deniers. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for purpose. Verse 15 is a bit of a strong one. They're divisive, warped, sinful, and self-condemned, he says in chapter 3, 10 to 11. Paul is ruthless in this book. He calls them useless. They use words for power. They're full of fruitless talk and proclaim a powerless religion. They say they know him, but 1 verse 16 gives their behavior away. You see, what we believe will always be proved by how we live. Listen to 1 John 2, verse 3 and 4. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. And he who does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. And look what Titus says in 3, verse 3. This is what we once were, he says. But we are like it no more. Why not? Why are we not like it anymore? Well, he tells us in, in 3 verse 5, because Jesus has saved us. God in Christ has saved us from our rebellious hearts, bad behavior, to be uh, followers of self, to become followers of him, devoted to him, devoted to his people, and devoted to good works. And Paul wants Titus to know that he has got to sort these dudes out. He cannot just ignore these people and hope that they'll go away or maybe it'll get better all by itself. I'm here with my mate Benny. should meet him. He's a character. And uh, Benny has cancer. And uh, when Benny was diagnosed with cancer earlier this year, I'll tell you what Benny didn't want to hear from his doctor. You've got cancer, mate, but don't worry about it, big man. Just try and ignore it, hope for the best, and maybe it'll work out for you. Who knows? Maybe it'll go away all by itself. Benny wanted a cure. Benny wanted those doctors to do everything possible to cure him, to cut that disease out of his body. He didn't want it to spread. That's what he was frightened of most, spreading. That's the point of Titus. There's a problem in the churches. He, it has to be dealt with decisively. And, and many church leaders try and ignore these kinds of problems. They smile, they hope for the best. They try and reason with these kinds of people. 
But unchecked sin and false teaching is a disease that spreads through the church. And we have to be ruthless in cutting it out. Why? For the good of the wider body. Now listen, I know they've got the little shouty one up here, sort of Danny Aiken, Mark II, but um, I'm not talking about being the secret police here. We're not out to hunt people down and find out what they believe or don't believe. I'm not going, let's hunt every case of false understanding of the Bible in the church. I wouldn't get out of my front door in the morning if that happened. What we're talking about is flagrant, public, and unrepentant sin of false teaching that is calling into question the gospel of Jesus, the honor of God's bringing the church into disrepute and dividing God's people. And if we don't deal with it, then our churches are going to become sick and weak and worthless. And they will die, as so many have in my homelands. Let me give you a word of advice, America. See, the thing is with America, it's big, right? You, you sort of know that. And some Americans are big. Um, <laughs> I know my brother wants them to get bigger, so praise the Lord. <laughs> you've got mega churches here, and, 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 and you've got some, in some cases, at least in, in many cities I've been to, some strong sort of vestiges of cultural Christianity. But, uh, but, but as I listen, I listen to guys like Mark and, and smart guys talk about Christianity and, you know, Al Muller and these guys doing their thing. It's clear to me that American evangelical Christianity is in the accident and emergency room at the hospital. You're in trauma, right? That's what's happening. But take a warning from a brother whose, whose Christianity is on life support in the critical care unit. We're long past accident and emergency. We're on life support. And let me tell you, I think, as we lie there thinking about it, I think we should have taken better care of our health. We should have taken steps earlier to deal with some of the poison in our churches. Then maybe we wouldn't be where we are today. You see, we didn't just allow wolves into our churches in Scotland. We gave them a seat at the table. That's how dumb we are. We let them shepherd the sheep. And now we're surprised that the sheep have all been eaten and what we're left with is a pack of wolves churning out lies and deceit to a gullible, godless nation that has no biblical knowledge or spiritual discernment whatsoever. This stuff's important. And now listen, let me be very clear, there's a difference between false teachers and doctrinal immaturity. Most of my church are heretics. Hello, if you're watching. And <laughs> they are heretics, and um, <clears throat> in so much, obviously, as they understand little about the Bible at this point. Now, if I disciplined everybody who said anything dumb or in, unbiblical in my church, I'd have nobody left. But we must act when we come into a knowledge of sinful practice. Romans 16, 17 to 18, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eyes on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. I can assure you, every person in this room today started out their Christian life as a heretic. Even Mark Dever <laughs> was a heretic once. I just want to say that, that felt good. <laughs> Uh, 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 
And I remember in my early days as a believer, listen, within seconds, within seconds of becoming to Jesus, I'm I'm all in. I'm a little dude that's always, I'm, I'm all in for everything. And I was back out on the streets. I was homeless for six years prior to coming to Christ. And all my friends were on the streets. Uh, and I was full of beans about Jesus. Man, you could not shut me up about Jesus. But I knew jack squat about the Bible. Anyway, I was with a brother from the church. I took with me on the streets. He was as nervous as the streets as I was of the church, so it's quite an amusing uh, combo. Um, and uh, so I took him with me into my sort of early forays into evangelism. And this, I was talking to a friend of mine, a guy, sadly, he's dead now, but the subject of the Holy Spirit came up. And I was asked, yeah, Mez, what's the Holy Spirit, man? And I'm like, dude, you know, listen to this. And so it, this is my opening gambit, it, I proudly told, you know, I was proudly telling my friend, I was two weeks into my newfound faith, I now considered myself to be somewhat of a Don Carson of the homeless fraternity. (laughs) It, I said, it's like the force in Star Wars, brother. You can't see it, but it's all around you. Helps you to zap sin, helps you to fight the devil. And it helps you to do some other cool stuff that I don't quite know about. <laughs> and what sealed the deal for him is when I said, there's even a dude called Luke in the Bible. <laughs> and I'm going deep, right? I'm going. And my mate, I remember, he was amazed. He goes, that is the greatest thing I've ever heard. I'm like, thank you. Uh, I'm, I've left buzzing. I'm like, yeah, I've done a whoa. I've evangelized someone. And, uh, and on the way home, this Christian friend of mine is a bit pale, <laughs> a little bit quiet. Mez, he said, brother, nervously. He was a bit nervous of me. I was a bit rough around the edges, believe it or not. And um, he said, brother, the Holy Spirit is never in it. The Holy Spirit is a person. He's a member of the Godhead, a member of the Trinity, and he's certainly not a force. Ah, I was devastated. So I said, right, get that car turned around. We're going back. So I was turned, we turned back. I found my friend. I corrected his faulty understanding of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> It's not like that at all. There's still a dude called Luke. He's cool, but... Actually, the Holy Spirit is a member of the Trinity, I said. Yeah, how'd you like that? And, uh, well, what's that, he said. Well, that is a bit like a peanut (laughs) M&M. The Father's the shell, holds it all together. The Son is the chocolate goodness, and... uh, Holy Spirit was the peanut. I'm not quite sure what that one was. And look around, my Christian brother has passed out on the floor. Some sort, of, some sort of heretical-induced coma. And, like, <laughs> and so here's my point. Sorry, Mark, I'll get back into the Bible now. But here's, here's my point. In those early days of the faith... I pretty much heard and repeated whatever nonsense Christians taught me. I had absolutely no spiritual knowledge or discernment whatsoever. Hear me, I was wrong, but I wasn't false. You understand me, brothers and sisters, we can be wrong and not false. We need to be clear about that. I was sometimes guilty of deep error and heresy, but it was childlike mistakes that I quickly corrected given the right instruction. That is completely different from a person in our churches who will not take correction, divides the flock, and seeks to lead weak sheep away. Was my teaching false in places? Of course it was false. 
Absolutely it was false. But I was an ill-informed sheep not a destructive, lying wolf. The difference is profound in how we handle this stuff. That's why we need to be wise in dealing with these issues. There's a difference between a false teacher who may still be in the process of learning and may not have all the facts straight. You you see, in Acts 18, don't you? 24 to 26. Priscilla and Aquila, listen, at that time a Jew named Apollos came to Ephesus, he was an educated man from Alexandria, he knew the scriptures very well, Apollos had been taught the way of the Lord, he spoke with great power, he taught the truth about Jesus, but he only knew John's baptism. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, Priscilla and Aquila heard him, so they invited him to their home, there, and I love this verse, there, they gave him a better understanding of the way of God, and he went on to do great stuff for Jesus, right? Many of our people, especially first-generation Christians, are just not going to have it all right. Not for a long time. But we mustn't allow false teachers and rebellious-spirited people into our pulpits and other places of influence A preacher can be forgiven if he doesn't get everything right as long as he is open to correction. Man, I've known these nine marks dudes for a few years. And a lot of my thinking was okay, and then it got a bit more okay. And it's becoming more and more okay. But my point is, this thing with Apollos, and he was, had a bit of understanding, he didn't have it all. This, what, this, this was not what was happening. You need to understand that. The language is strong because this was not the situation. Look at verse 11 of chapter 1. They were upsetting whole families. They were affecting people. They were undermining their confidence in Christ. That's the mark. Falseless, false teaching, undermining the work of Jesus, bringing division into the church. Much more serious than a naive little fellow who doesn't know anything. And he's just trying his best for the Lord. And so what's the solution? What, 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 what does he say is the solution to the problem? Well, he tells him very clearly, firstly, what do we do when false teachers infiltrate our communities? Firstly, we teach them sound We teach our people sound doctrine. Look at verse 13. And sorry, 2 verse 1 as well. As for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Then go back to verse 13. Uh, Rebuke them sharply. Why? Why? Rebuke them. Why? That they may be sound in the faith. So to deal with the, 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 the problem of poison in our churches, we have to drip feed biblical and theological soundness into every pore. Now there's a lie that says pursuing doctrine is an unspiritual act. Apparently if you do that, you're not very Holy Spirit filled. And it is worse in my communities. I work with people, many of whom are illiterate, many of whom are in a situation I was in when I first came to Jesus uh, about uh, the Bible. And according to some, people in poor communities, people in needy, deprived, whatever you want to call them, according to some, doctrine is above and beyond us. Apparently, Just give the poor Jesus and a big hug and it'll all be okay. No, it won't. And it's never been okay. All this approach has done is leave my community and thousands. Listen, I know in the projects and everywhere, all this has done is leave us with a gaping spiritual void in some of our neediest communities, and that void is being filled by all sorts of half-baked charlatans, prosperity heretics, and bam pots, we call them, with a diet of easy believism and pseudo-spiritual mumbo-jumbo. 
Doctrine does not kill. It is the lack of doctrine that does the damage every time. And I don't care whether you wear a beanie or a shirt and tie. That point is the same, whatever your context. Sound doctrine is the medicine that grows healthy churches and revives dying communities. People are dying spiritually. They are undernourished. They are unable to stand up to even the most basic temptation from the enemy. They are crumbling in the face of satanic onslaught. They are dieting on the junk food of internet teaching. They are weak and they need sound doctrine in our poorest communities as much as they need our sympathy and our mercy. They need, we need the life-giving, soul-stirring, spirit-feeding nourishment of sound doctrine. That's the cure for many of the ills in our churches. Godly men administering godly, meaty, spiritual truth in accordance with sound doctrine. Look at chapter 2, verse 7 to 8. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so an opponent may be put to shame. We are to teach with seriousness. Of course I like a joke. Of course. I do. I'm a bit of a lad when it comes to having the crack. And the pulpit, though, in these situations, when I'm teaching my people in all seriousness, the pulpit is not the place for misdirected humor when it comes to teaching the Bible and calling out false teachers, because it's not a joke. The sheep today have more have access to more spiritual nonsense from more multimedia outlets and worldwide resources than ever before. See, the wolf doesn't sneak in through the back gate anymore. He's logged into our people's homes on a daily basis. And therefore, the antidote to poor teaching is not shouting louder and beating the sheep harder. It is kind, endurant, patient, long-suffering teaching of sound doctrine. We must forget the lie that says if a brother or sister can't read very well, then they can't learn very well. Because the great tragedy of much of church ministry to the poor is that we feed them scraps in the mistaken assumption that they can't digest real food. And then we wonder why they're not growing and moving on from their chaotic lifestyles. See, when Jesus said, feed my sheep, I'm sure he didn't mean, just give the strong ones the good stuff and let the weak ones take what's left. And in our communities, it might take more time, more money, and more effort, but we must ensure that we are teaching all of the sheep, even the so-called runts of the flock. And doctrine is healthy when it is encouraging believers to grow into maturity and not splinter into divided factions. Our people cannot be deceived when they are fed a steady diet of biblical truth and Christian doctrine. We're not called to be superstars in the ministry. We're called to be faithful shepherds who feed and nourish our people. Doctrine, second point, You are to appoint trustworthy elders. Titus needs to do what? He's told early doors in 1 verse 5. He's to put into order and appoint elders. Why is this so important? Well, because elders must lead the way in teaching this sound doctrine. That's what he says in verse 9. Look. Elder, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught. Why? So that he's able to give instruction in sound doctrine. That's pretty clear. That's really good when you read the Bible clearly. Uh, uh, that's the point behind Titus 2 verse 1. And of course he's talking to Titus here. Specifically about doctrine. 
But he's instructing Titus to teach men and women sound doctrine too. Why? That they too may teach men and women sound doctrine. Younger, older, older, younger. And any church discipline carried out by a lone ranger without wide-ranging support and input from fellow believers will quickly degenerate into heavy shepherding and cult-like behaviorism. Trust me, I know. I'm constantly got guys in my office in places all over the place battling on their own and in real danger. Elders must hold firmly to the trustworthy message so they can refute the false stuff. And of course, you've got this list of moral uh, qualifications, but know this, elders must know the truth as much as they know the sheep. Elders should be faithful to their wives, their children, their families, their fellow elders, their congregations, their Lord, and they should be faithful to the truth of the, uh, the scriptures. Elders should not be hot-headed and quick-tempered. And that's important. Why is that important? That's important given the amount of pastoral problems that come our way. I mean, have you met a false teacher? They are annoying. Some I would like to slap around the place. That's not good. I have other elders who would say, brother, that's not good. Not a boozer, a drinker, not a lover of money, not violent. Look at verse 8, self-controlled, disciplined, upright, holy. Love what is good. Self-control is of huge importance here because uh, there will be matters and people in your church that will drive you to the edge of distraction if you cannot keep your emotions in check. And of course, we're not robots. The beat is the man, isn't he? How he just got the emotion. Of course we do, we feel it. But we must never act out of frustration and anger. And some discipline issues are so emotionally charged that we must be careful we are acting in honoring, patient, and self-controlled ways. I can be a guy who's quick to jump in. And some of my best elders will not set the world on fire as preachers, but they can apply the Bible with real pastoral wisdom in tight situations. That's why we need them. Third, practice comprehensive discipline. That's why I've been invited to this gig to talk about discipline, so we've got there. Listen, we don't just do church discipline because Nine Marks thinks it's cool, but because the Lord tells us it's necessary. It is necessary for the protection of the flock for which Jesus shed his lifeblood. Now, there's some who think, well, church discipline, it's a bit heavy. It's a bit OTT. You know, let's concentrate on the good things in our churches. But you imagine a hospital that opened its doors and announced to the world that well, we're, not, we're, not, we're no longer going to be treating the sick. We're going we're gonna to focus on the people who are well. That would be foolish, dangerous, and stupid. And we need to practice church discipline. We need more straight talking in our churches, not less. Look at the challenge of Titus in 1 verse 11. They must be silenced. Look at verse 13. Rebuke them sharply. Look at chapter 2 verse 6. Urge the younger men to self-control. Look at verse 12. Train them to renounce godliness. Uh, sorry, to renounce godlessness. <laughs> Don't worry, Mark, you can rebuke me. 3-1. Uh, Remind them to be submissive, obedient. Listen, verse 10. Listen, Paul hasn't come to hand out spiritual hugs and kisses. The church is sinking. The church is sinking under the weight of all of this stuff. And his advice here isn't to win people or pray about it, although he should do these things. Avoid the foolish, he says in 3 verse 9. In other words, shun these people. And the context obviously is Judaizers who were adding to the gospel, debating over stupid things, words and myths. But some people just plain need to be denounced. Simple. And these people are so unprofitable and useless, there's no debating with them. Get shot of them. 
And his commands are uncompromising and unflinching. Face these issues head on, he tells Titus. Tackle these people head on. The language, isn't it? When you read the language, it's abrasive to our molly-coddled ears. You see, this is the Christian world today. We don't mind leaving a strongly worded response on a blog post or trolling some poor sap on Twitter because he mixed up his Greek verbs or something. Well, I think you'll find the Greek verb is hofofo. Yeah. Yeah, That's helpful. Um, We don't mind doing that, do we? But stick us in front of a real life wolf. Huh. And we want to stroke it. Oh. Give it a bit bit of milk. Maybe tickle it and, you know. Little fluffy belly. Ooh, doo 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 doo. Get it dealt with, or it'll bite you. And it will spread rabies to everybody who comes into contact with it. We read language like Titus, and we want to caveat every word. We want to soften the meaning. Maybe Paul didn't mean rebuke. Maybe Paul meant snuggle. (laughs) I think you'll find, brother, the, the Greek there could mean snuggle. Let's just snuggle the wolves. We want to make the word sound more loving. But look at the language. Again, silence, verse 11. I mean, that's mafioso stuff right there, right? Rebuke them sharply. Urge the young men. Train them to announce ungodliness. Declare, exhort, remind. Insist on these things. Warn them. Exclude them. So whatever the list of qualifications for elders means in Titus, let me tell you this. It doesn't mean men without backbone. Because that's the light of the world, right? And there's another, there's an there's a opposite thing to this in sort of cool, sort of tight jean wearing reform world where <laughs> men need to watch cage fighting and drink craft beer. You know, yeah, I'm a Christian, drink beer and I like cage fighting. Now, what I'm reading for a strong, godly man in my Bible, gentleness. A man with backbone who is gentle, self-controlled, and hospitable. I'm trying to get my people away from scrapping, from that nonsense, from that image of manliness, into this one. Be very careful what we're trying to win people with. That is what elders are to be, but they must show incredible courage in the face of unrelenting opposition as they engage faithfully in biblical discipline. We must guard our pulpits. We must guard against those who would seek to infiltrate our groups in order to influence people. Do you know in poor ministries around the world today, in poor groups, in churches around the world, there's more anti biblical, gospel-perverting nonsense that gets taught in support groups, alcoholic groups, drug addiction groups, and offenders groups, and probably any, any other ministries in the church. Amen. We must be on our guards, and we must protect the sheep, and even those ones who don't look or smell like us. Maybe they're not going to go on and get a PhD or come to a nice seminary. We've got to protect them. You know, I I live and work among first-generation believers. They are babies in Christ. You know, it is a blessing. I love my people, man. I love them. And and it's a blessing, but you know, it's a danger. If you've had children, you know what it's like when they start walking and talking and getting into mischief. When they become a little bit more independent. It's exciting, but you're worried as well. You've got to keep an eye on them. Well, that's how I feel about my congregation. They're young, and there's so many wolves at the door waiting to tear into them. And sometimes people will come along and pass on their wisdom to them. Or they'll have a word of knowledge or some other spurious prophecy. And they have to be muzzled, these people. They have to be shut down. You see, false teachers aren't just found on American TV channels 
They roam the streets of Scotland. They inhabit our pulpits. They're in our theological faculties. And poor communities across the world are a breeding ground for ravenous wolves eager to pounce on the vain hopes of the poor and the needy. And that is why we need more sound doctrine, more sound teaching, more gospel ministry, more godly men in these communities than we've needed them ever before. We have to fight the zeitgeist of the world which says, I can do what I like, I can say what I like, I can believe what I like, because we cannot. We must believe what scripture teaches. We must act in accord with that. We must submit to the lordship of King Jesus. We are not our own. We were bought. We were bought for community, not individuality. And this sort of wrong thinking can take hold early on in the life of a church when we are full of babes. This is a particular warning to church planters. I've been planning a long time. Young Christians are susceptible to any teacher that sounds convincing because they haven't developed the ability to fend for themselves yet. That's the dangerous times. That's when you feed them the strongest stuff, by the way. You get them into the milk, obviously, but, but we mustn't keep our people drinking milk formula. Too many guys walking around schemes and projects in, this, in Scotland and in this country drinking milk out of bottles. How do we deal with these guys? We deal with them swiftly, we deal with them publicly, we correct their teaching, we rebuke the teacher, we take care of those who've been affected by this false teaching before, he takes care of them. And just finally, my last point, honestly, we've got to model godliness. Look at chapter two, seven to eight again. One Peter two, uh, sorry, chapter two, seven to eight. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, not just in teaching, but how we live. Listen to 1 Peter 2.15. You silence the foolishness of ignorant men. How? By your clever words and arguments? No. By your holy conduct. Pastors do not, should not be sitting on ivory th- thrones dispensing wisdom and three-point sermons. Pastors should be living among their people and modeling godliness to them. Because we know that poor discipline in churches makes a liar out of God and denies the life-transforming power of the gospel. And we know we don't just turn from an old way of life in Christ. We embrace a whole new one. But what does it look like to a dude like me who doesn't have a clue? What's a dad? What's a mom? What? What what do I do? How do I live? What? What does that look like? This. Come into my life, brother, because this is what it looks like. This is what it sounds like, and this is what it looks like. The heart, do you know the heart of church discipline? is Christians challenging one another to bring their deeds back into line with their claim to have an intimate knowledge of the truth of the gospel of King Jesus. In other words, people need to know that how we live matters. Now, I'm nearly finished, and I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't quote from at least one Scotsman. Okay? Token Scottish quote. So, Eric Liddell. You heard of Eric Liddell? Hand up if you heard of Eric Liddell. No. Well, Eric Liddell was an Olympic champion. He inspired a film, Chariots of Fire. He died in a Chinese internment camp at a young age. And by all accounts, he was the most boring bloke on the planet. I mean, apparently he would bore the pants right off you. And let me read a quote that I picked up somewhere. Some dude wrote about Eric's funeral. He said, it's Eric's funeral today. He was not particularly clever. Sounds like a sort of Mark Dever sort of line, doesn't it? (laughs) Mark Dever's compliment for Lig. He was not particularly clever and not conspicuously able. But he was good. He was naturally reserved. He tended to live in a world of his own, but he gave of himself unstintedly. I love that word. He always shrank from revealing his deepest needs and distresses so that while he bore the burdens of many, very few could help to bear his. He wasn't a great leader or an inspired thinker, but he knew what he ought to do, and he did it. He was a true disciple of the master. Man. That's heavy, right? He wasn't flashy. He wasn't showy. He's an ordinary Joe. 
who lived his life for the glory of God. He died in ignominy, but he affected people. What we believe matters because it always affects how we live. And it's why we have to challenge sin in our churches because every unrepentant act is open rebellion against the Lord we have professed to follow. Discipline is always connected to truth. Because it is right thinking that leads to right living. Discipline is not changing a person's behavior. We're not asking people to be like us. We're asking them to be like Jesus. Because that, chapter 2, 11 to 14, that's, this is the heartbeat behind all discipline. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. There is no other salvation. We cannot add to the gospel. We cannot take from the gospel. We cannot do these things and hope to escape unpunished. We must take discipline seriously, false teaching seriously, because nothing less than the honor of God is at stake. He is the blessed hope. We are, you know, all we're doing it, we're at a conference waiting for Jesus to appear. You know that, right? We're just sort of passing the time. It's a good time. I like it. But that's what we're waiting for. You see, at the heart of, the gospel, heart of church discipline is the gospel. We want people to live lives that honor the gospel. We want people to live and honor Jesus. We want them to honor the word of God and live like Christians. We want them to help us to do the same. We don't want to do this stuff to annoy people or because we like wielding authority. Church discipline practiced correctly always honors Jesus. He redeemed us from our sins. You know, one of the main purposes, again, of church discipline is to nurture those unfit for anything to become fit for God's specially designed purpose for their lives. Remember, we want to reprove people to win them, not lose them. But we shouldn't be scared to lose the false. May God help us be faithful shepherds and servants and fellow believers to one another as we contend for the faith once for all entrusted to the saints. Amen? Amen. Amen. Thank you very much.